Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our Captain Professional Development, Michael Wells Whitworth. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here again. We are on YouTube as well today, so I'm going to awkwardly try to look at the camera up there, try to look at you, and try not to turn away from the microphone so my sound is terrible. Uh, that's Dr. Dixon's normal job is he likes to look around and be very animated when he talks. And so sometimes that's why his volume goes up and down. We want to maybe put him in a halo or a, a C-spine collar <laughs> or something to keep him still. Uh, but I don't, I think that's probably a lost cause. But anyhow, today on the podcast, we're going to address something that's been, again, kind of the, the theme here with, with the podcast is a subject of discussion here in the office over the past, you know, four to six months. And that is how to improve our patient care charting. And that really goes hand in hand with the recent rollout of our new EPCR here at MCHD. And so anytime you address the electronic patient care record, how we chart in said care record is always a topic of conversation. Before we roll into our charting pitfalls that we're going to discuss, this is not going to be a discussion on how to write an EMS chart. That would take days, months, uh, that's a that's an in-depth discussion that's too long for the podcast. Today we're going to talk about some of the pet peeves that Michael and I have, have come across just in discussing this back and forth when reading, uh, you know, electronic charts and some of the things that we hope the listeners can take away and maybe next time they write a chart, take one or two of these and maybe make it just a little bit better. So I'm going to roll out with number one, and this is probably above and beyond any of the others that we talk about the foundation and that is stick to the facts and just the facts you know the opinions of bystanders are irrelevant um, one of the things that really annoys me when I see it in charts is when uh, physicians nurses medics try to insert their forensic uh, opinions most of us me included are not forensically trained so you know entrance exit wound that sort of thing Realistically, we, we don't know which one's the entrance and the exit. There are, uh, you know, I think probably wives' tales out there that, you know, the entrance is always smaller than the exit. That doesn't really hold true. Uh, I, again, not being forensically trained, I see a wound on the chest and a wound on the back. I can describe those wounds and describe the size, uh, the location. But as far as what kind of caliber weapon caused the wound, which one was where it went in, where it went out, I, you know, especially when there's multiple uh, penetrating wounds. That just, I feel like it really, we leave our lane there a little bit. Secondly, your opinion of the patient's condition, their lifestyle choices, uh, your opinion of their family members, those things, they, they don't belong in the chart at all. Again, the opinions of bystanders are, are irrelevant. The opinion of you really is irrelevant in, unless it's a fact that's directly related to patient care. Now, one of the questions that I get asked often and one of the dilemmas I have that when I'm charting myself, what happens when a patient cusses me out? You know, what F you doctor, I get that not infrequently. And how do you document in a chart when somebody, you know, is really derogatory towards you or yelling, cursing, uh, you know, refusing care, um, leaving before 
you know, receiving discharge summary, those sort of things in the ED, those are impactful in the course of care because, you know, the patient didn't take their prescription for augmentin. They may not have taken their pain medication. They may not have taken their discharge summary. And that's not exactly applicable to your world out on the street as, as a paramedic, but it is in the sense that we all unfortunately have to deal with, with unsavory behaviors sometimes. And sometimes while it is your opinion that that patient is a jerk, it's also a fact that they said certain things to you and that they refuse care in certain ways. So my take on that and my foundation when I'm charting in my practice is to only chart those behaviors and those statements and those quote unquote uh, things that folks yell at you and curse at you when it impacts their care. If they refuse something, if they don't take something, if they don't listen or cooperate, those things in my mind impact patient care and that's fair game for the chart. And lastly, when you're sticking to the facts and you're finishing up your note, this is one that you brought up when we reviewed this and I, I agree totally, before you hit save, read it out loud. And, you know, sometimes I even you know, kind of read out loud to myself at my desk. It's the best proofreading method. You'll catch tons of mistakes that way. And that way you can really have just the facts in the chart. And, you know, your first draft's never, never your best draft. So number one, stick to the facts. Number two, don't fight and bicker. Um, so your, your patient care report is just patient care. It's not an instant report. If something goes wrong, if you have disagreements with your partner about patient care, if you have disagreements with your supervisor or even the ED charge nurse or, or doc, those don't belong in the patient care chart. It's strictly a record of the care that you provided to the patient. Um, if you do have those incidents, you know, with your partner, work it out in the truck after the call. The The cab of the truck driving back to the station is a sacred place for you and your partner to, to work things out and bond and, and develop to be a better team and learn from each other. Um, with your supervisor, work it out after the call. If it's an ED charge nurse or doc, get your, your work up, your chain of command, um, an MCHD with, if it's a, an ED doc, you know, get the medical directors involved. They're happy to, to be the go between there. Um, but personal vendettas and grievances are, are never something that we should document in the patient care chart. Um, it's an objective factual record of, of the care that we provided to that patient. And I would just add in before we move on to number three on this one, I would agree with Michael hundred percent, you know, none of us like it when another colleague, another professional, uh, argues with us, chastises us, uh, degrades us in a group setting. So if we have a, you know, the chart really is a group setting. So if we have a disagreement with the ED, the ED doc, the charge nurse, you know, the folks at any receiving hospital, that's a really difficult situation. And the best thing you can do is keep the high ground there, uh, stay above the fray. And it's not that me as the medical director doesn't care about those incidents. I absolutely do. There's just very little to be gained from a putting any of that in the chart and b having it out in front of the patient. Yeah, the, absolutely. The, that just needs to happen after the fact. There needs to be an email after the fact, um, and that that's just the best way to handle that rather than in the moment. In the moment is never never beneficial. You're never going to win. You're you know quote unquote. You're never going to convince somebody that you're right and they're wrong. And the patient is always there and it just reflects poorly on everyone. So not in the chart, not in front of the patient. 
Uh, that's just it's just a good good habit to to take forward. So number one, stick to the facts. Number two, don't fight and bicker in the chart. It's not the place for it. Number three, get them finished and get them finished promptly. Right. So facts go in the chart. If you we learn that from number one, if you wait two days, three days, a week to complete your chart, how accurate are your facts? And I work with emergency docs that are notorious for leaving charts for weeks. And I just, uh, I, it makes me a nervous wreck to leave a chart even after a shift. And you do it sometimes when you're, when you're swamped and when you're busy. I would say that if you have to leave a chart because of fatigue, because you, you know, you finish up your shift and you got to go to your brother's wedding or you get a call that your child's sick and you, you know, you leave uh, to go care for a child or a, a loved one or a spouse or whatever it may be. Those things happen. And sometimes we have to leave them. If you do, and you're going to prioritize which chart you're going to finish, finish the highest risk charts first. That would be my tidbit within a tidbit here in number three, you know, the ear pain, the stub toe, the abdominal pain for six months with normal vital signs, those are low risk anyway. So those would, would be the ones that I would leave in my practice. If you had a cardiac arrest or you had an difficult airway or you had a high-risk refusal. High refusal, trauma activation, all those are ones that I would, I would knock out as soon as possible and I wouldn't leave shift until those are done. Everything is time-stamped today. So if a chart is pulled, you know, God forbid for – uh, litigation and for evidence and the run was May 13th and you completed the chart on May 20th and a plaintiff attorney sees that chart and sees that it's completed a week later. How's that going to look? Is it going to look like your charting is accurate or that potential discrepancies could have occurred there because you, you waited so long? No, the, the first thing that attorney is going to ask you is what did you have for breakfast yesterday morning? And as soon as you pause for a second, he's going to nail you for not being able to remember things from yesterday, let alone a week ago. And, Realistically, when you think back to a week ago and you try to remember what you did that day and what you had for breakfast and all the things that happened, it's pretty difficult. Yeah. So while we think we can remember calls and we think we can remember patient contacts and we can to an extent, time is going to degrade that memory, whether we like it or not. And, you know, secondly, if you're like me and you're, you know, I can't stand talking about or even thinking about CYA type medicine and, and preventing litigation. And while it's part of what we do, I'm of the belief that if we chart well from a patient care standpoint, which is the foundation of what we do here at MCHD and should be what we do in emergency care everywhere, then that's going to cover billing and coding and medical legal risk and all those things. But one of the big ones is for me, especially in the emergency room, and it's the same thing for you on the truck, is continuity of care. So you run today on a patient, you're working, you know, medic 13, whatever it may be. And you, you run out on a patient and they refuse and you come back to the station and you don't finish your chart. And that patient calls back tomorrow when your partner, uh, colleague runs on that patient and they pull up the, the report and they see nothing but a blank report or they can't pull it up at all because it's not completed. That's not optimal for patient care either. So there's an element, the biggest element to me of getting them finished on time, especially the complex charts, the difficult refusals, the trauma activations, the airways, uh, the, the cardiac arrest, is that you may end up 
call back out to that patient or your colleague may be called back out to that patient. And the more information they have at their disposal, the better their medical decisions can be. And I have that happen in the emergency department at times when a patient will be discharged at two in the afternoon and I work the night shift and the afternoon doc doesn't finish the chart up and I can't access it. So I'm stuck looking through scattered nurses notes and vital signs, trying to figure out what, what this person thought and what the actual, you know, medical decision-making process was. So get them finished properly. It's medically legally safer. It's better for patient care. It's, it's better all around. So hitting number four, take this one away. Number four, use your team. Charting's not always an individual sport. Um, when you have those high risk calls, the, those calls where your radar is going off that, that it's going to go to court or be reviewed, um, those complex situations, get your partners together. Um, you know, when I run a big cardiac arrest and we do everything under the sun, I'll talk to my partner. I'll call my supervisor that was on scene, go through the list of all the procedures that we did, make sure I've got them in the right order and about the right timeline. Cause, uh, as humans, our brains are fallible. Our memories are fallible. And two brains are two or even three brains are better than one at trying to remember those events. In those high stress situations, we, we tend to, our time perception is skewed and it can make things difficult to remember the exact events that, ha events that happen. So get your team together. Um, and we're not talking about uh, conspiring to, to create a deception or to, to cover up something. Just to make sure that everybody remembers things the, the same way and you're getting the most accurate version of events down on paper. I remember a situation, a patient that I took care of, and it's been 12, 14 years ago now, and really sort of imprinted this, the importance of this to me and my practice. And I'll, I'll tell the story and, and de-identify a little bit. Um, I was taking care of a, a child. Uh, this was the start of a busy shift. I was fairly new out of residency, so I was nervous enough at baseline. And the department was busting at the seams and the complaint chief complaint up on the, on the board was dysuria. So I thought, Oh, this is straightforward. Get a urine sample, get some antibiotics, get things rolling. And when I walked in the room, it was very obvious as the door opened and I saw the mother, the father and the patient that this was not as billed. Uh, the mother was distraught. The child was withdrawn. The father was beyond irate, big, large, burly man. It was just, I mean, he, he was being a father and the child wasn't there for dysuria. The child was there because there was concern that they had been assaulted by a neighbor and sexually assaulted. So it was obviously a much bigger deal than dysuria. So I knew as soon as I opened that door, my radar went off that, oh, this is going to be this is going to be taken to court. I'm going to be called as a witness on this. There's no way around it. So I knew that going in and I was very sensitive to that, that in thorough documentation and thorough care for the patient and did a, a thorough examination, a thorough STI testing and STI treatment. And I even, you know, I was concerned that the father was going to retaliate against uh, the perpetrator here, the, the presumed perpetrator. And so I actually called, this was a Sunday, I called to the children's hospital where our sexual assault nurses were and actually had them come in or asked them very kindly to come in on call that day because it wasn't really a time-sensitive emergency. They, they could have been examined the next day. 
Uh, but I was concerned the father was going to go home and commit another crime. So I really wanted them to have a place to go so that they could close the loop here and feel like they were totally, you know, the son was totally taken care of. And so in this process, I documented eyes dotted, T's crossed throughout. I saw very clear evidence on my exam of, of trauma and documented as such and sent the patient on their way to see the specialist and thought done and dusted, you know, good job, Casey. You've thought through that. You've, you know, filled in all the gaps and this won't be any trouble when it comes along. And sure enough, 14 months later, I got the call that, you know, to be a witness in the trial and went back and pulled up the electronic record to look through my note and thought, that really looks great. You're going to be, you're going to be, you know, home free. And it was my first time uh, as a witness in a trial in front of the court and in front of two lawyers. So I was very nervous. And when I went to, I don't, I don't even know why I did it. I, I went to review my chart and our computer system was connected under the same hospital umbrella as the children's hospital. So I pulled the sexual assault nurse exam up where they were seen later that day. And the documentation on the chart from them was normal. And my stomach dropped. I was sick. I was sick for days. You know, I knew that I was going to go in front of this jury and, you know, the attorney for the defendant in the case was going to, you know, ring me basically. And that's exactly what happened. You know, so you saw this exam finding doctor and the sexual assault nurse, who's the specialist from XYZ Children's Hospital, didn't. And you mean to have the the jury believe that you're right and they're wrong. And, and it was this over and over and over again. And I have zero doubt, as sure as I'm sitting here on planet Earth today, there was evidence of trauma on the exam. I, there, I, I have zero doubt. I have no idea why this sexual assault nurse didn't see it, whether or not it was a faulty exam, whether or not, I don't know. I can't explain it. It's, it's just, it's inexplicable, but I do know exactly what I saw, but there were only two eyes and one brain involved. And my mistake wasn't my thoroughness. It wasn't in my charting. It's that I had a team member that day as well that I didn't involve. I didn't get my chaperone, my nurse to come in with me. I really looking back, if I'd have my nurse walk in the room and A, be a chaperone and B, just observe, he or she could have gone right back out and made a note of trauma, observe with Dr. Patrick on exam as chaperone. And then when it would have been two on one and would we have had the same question to answer? Probably. Would I have drugged the nurse into the courtroom with me? Probably. But would I have been probably more solid in in my findings absolutely so it's a long-winded story to to prove the point that i didn't want the nurse to come in to lie if the nurse had come in the room he or she would have seen the finding too there's just there's no way around it so it just would have solidified our findings and my alarm was going off the whole time i knew that was going to be a high risk a litigated uh, reviewed case i just knew it but i went at it on my own and i was solo and it you know, it ended up leading to trouble. So um, use your team. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't don't cook the books. But, you know, we know that eyewitness accounts are very fallible. But when you add a second eyewitness and a third eyewitness, then your timeline becomes more solid. The details fill in. And again, your facts are more factual and more accurate. 
What about too long, too short, Michael? Is there a, is there a happy place there we need to be? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it kind of takes practice and experience to, to get this down, what, what you need to cover in your narratives um, and, and what to leave out. You know, generally a one-sentence narrative, probably too short. Um, with the new PCR that we implemented here, we did some testing and found out that you can get to about 10,000 words in a narrative before the, the system freaks out. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a happy medium. Dr. Patrick says, you know, if you get past about, you know, 600 words, you're probably, uh, going to lose his, his attention span. Um, and so the narrative should be just, just that it's the story. It's the narrative note. It's telling the story of patient care from, from the time you encountered the patient to the time that you transferred care. Um, you don't need to include a whole bunch of stuff that's covered in the, the yes, no check boxes throughout the rest of the chart. Um, but you know, you can reference that stuff. So if you want to explain, you know, I gave epinephrine for this reason, that's perfectly fine to include in the narrative. You don't need to say I gave epinephrine one milligram of one to 10,000 concentration in the narrative because that's covered elsewhere. You don't need to double document, but if you need to use the narrative to explain, that's perfectly fine. The length of your narrative is going to vary based on complexity. Um, you know, your your stub toe that's been sore for three days that all they do, you do is give them a ride to the hospital, probably going to be a pretty short narrative. Your VFib VTAC arrest that you, you know, do everything under the sun, get ROSC, and then have to do a whole bunch of post-ROSC care and a 45-minute transport to the hospital, it's probably going to be pretty lengthy. Um, so your your details and your length of your narrative is going to vary based on if, of how severe your case was. Um, and then, once again, avoid double documenting. Um, you know, you can reference stuff, just don't copy those minute details that's easy to to get wrong and contradict yourself between one part of the chart and the other. Anything to add there, Dr. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I, I see this in, in the emergency room a lot, or I hear it. Uh, a lot of our electronic medical records have dictation microphones that we use, and so I get to hear my partners dictate, which is probably one of my least favorite things in the world is listening to other doctors dictate charts because I can't stop listening, and then I'm critiquing the whole time, and then, then I feel like a jerk when I'm critiquing the whole time, so I hate it. Uh, but that said, I do hear a lot of just what I feel like ends up being needless double documenting. For instance, in a lot of our EMRs, the past medical history is auto-imported from the nursing notes. So diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, hyperlipidemia, restless legs, obstructive sleep apnea, all those things come into the chart automatically in past medical history. So... When the patient comes in and you're doing your history of present illness, that's important. You're documenting when the pain started and does it radiate and where does it radiate and how does it feel and what are the aggravating and alleviating factors and all those things that you know we do in our medic notes as well. But I'll hear other doctors dictate the entire past medical history in the history of present illness. And I think to myself, that's already there once. Like that's, I mean, it's it's fine enough. It doesn't really cause any huge harm except for the fact that you risk contradicting yourself, like you said, and then it just creates a, a big jumble and it's harder to, to digest and to see what you're doing. Now, if a patient comes in with chest pain, it probably is important that they have a history of coronary disease, stents, and diabetes because those are risk factors. That's a pertinent positive. Uh, it may be important that they don't have any history of PE or DVT because that's a pertinent negative. They don't have a deep venous thrombosis history. So I feel like the same thing holds true in our narrative. Pertinent positives and pertinent negatives are important, but just putting in tons of information that doesn't really apply to the story of patient care from encounter to transfer, it doesn't, 
It doesn't help anything. It does. It just it just creates more words, and it's harder to digest and harder to decipher. And it really leads us into the last and sixth pitfall, and that is there is no word count. And really, 600 words, probably way too much. If you get to that 10,000-word mark and you test the limits, I'm coming after you. Uh, but there's, there's no word count, and there's no amount of information. There's no beautiful flowing prose that you can create that's going to cover up poor care and poor attitude. And if you're a jerk, you're going to get patient complaints. You're eventually going to get sued because we know that jerks get sued and get complaints. And there's no amount, there's no beauty, there's no word count number of charting that's going to fix that. So if you provide good care and you're kind to patients, then your charts can be brief and concise and really short and to the point because it's easier that way. And again, it doesn't mean that they all can be brief and concise. Sometimes we got to chart more. We're going to have patients who are belligerent. We're going to have patients who refuse. We're going to have patients who don't go our way and things spiral out of control. And we, you know, we have to go to plan B in the airway because the patient gets hypoxic or we have to take a second look because we have to suction or, we don't know why the patient decompensates and arrests en route. They just did. And so those narratives, that alarm should go off on those situations, and we're going to have to be a little bit longer. And sometimes the explanation is there is not one. You just have to explain through what happened and tell that story. Um, and, you know, just like in high school, when you get in trouble, what kills you? Is it the initial act? It's never the initial act. It's always the cover-up that buries you, and that's what ends up, tossing that six feet of dirt onto your head and, uh, you know, really, uh, the final nail is, is the cover up. So there's no word count that's going to cover up poor attitude and poor care. So don't, don't think that you can ever get there that way. So that gets us through our six charting pitfalls, stick to the facts, just the facts. Don't fight, don't bicker, don't have confrontation in the chart. It's not where that should take place. There is a place for that. And you know, if it needs to go through the medical director, I'm happy to deal with that, but it doesn't go in the patient care record. Get your charts finished promptly. Timely completion is key, both for continuity of care. Uh, if it ever gets pulled and you've got a week gap in between when you saw the patient and when you timestamp the completion, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to forget. You want to have a good, accurate chart. Use your team. It's okay to involve your partner. It's okay to involve your supervisor. Like we said, probably not going to involve them on every stub toe and every ankle sprain. That's that's a bit much. But the radar off calls, the concern calls, the high risk calls, the complicated refusal calls, the calls where things spin out of control or you've got a disgruntled patient. Those are all ones where we should consider using our team and having two, four, six extra eyes look over the chart. Not too long, not too short. Keep it in that concise but tell the story range. And no amount of charting is going to cover up being a jerk. It just, it won't get you there. So don't think that some beautiful sentence writing will help because it's just going to, it's still going to come back on you. So anything you want to add, Michael, thanks for your help in putting this yeah. one together. I, I think that's a pretty good summary of, of things not to do when charting. So if you have other charting ideas, we probably could do another Absolutely. Tw- 26 charting tidbits. So maybe this is one that spins off into episode two or episode three. You know, we we talked about it at the beginning. We've been EPCR heavy here over the last three months with implementation. So it's just led to discussion on how we chart and how we can chart better. So thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions or ideas for future podcasts, email us at the podcast email. 
podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or review wherever you're listening. That helps make us more visible, and we like to see those thumbs up and five-star reviews. If you're watching on YouTube, we welcome comments. Appreciate you watching online. And if you're wondering, we didn't hit this a bit at the beginning, but we do not have masks on today. We are following the current CDC guidelines. Michael and I are both thankfully uh, vaccinated and have had our time gap after our second dose. So we're fully protect, uh, protected and distanced and following, again, the CDC guidelines, which we have here at MCHD since the beginning of the pandemic. So don't question, please don't question our, uh, our uh, pandemic precautions here because we are, we are following the experts. So as always, again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.